Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Jenna Kelly as she explores the lasting psychological and emotional bonds between individuals. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network and join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. Hi there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly. I hope this finds you well wherever you're listening or watching this today. And if you feel so compelled, as always, super grateful if you can subscribe, follow, leave a comment, rating, all of that, so we can continue to get these great interviews out into the heads and the hearts of people that need to hear them. And speaking of heart, my heart was so moved by the conversation that I had with my next guest that I can't wait to share with you. Cyrus Raquel Rivas Bordejo is an author and she's the owner of Empowering Light Language LLC. She's a life and family coach, a speech and language pathology pathologist, and a therapeutic energy worker. She's got a dual master's degree in both speech and language pathology and learning disabilities. And she helps busy people and families communicate more effectively in all areas of their lives, leveraging their differences, gifts, and capacities so they can create phenomenal lives beyond what has been projected and expected of them. And she is adorable. She's fun. She's real. She's also got a podcast. Uh, All of this will be linked in our show notes. She is so generous in everything that she shares in this interview with different books and resources and things that have helped her. And we're talking about neurodiversity and especially how this relates to attachment relationships. And she's going to share stories with you and resources. And she's just a true delight. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I I did. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Hello, Ceres. Welcome. It's so good to see you again. Thank you for joining me. Yes, thank you for joining me in conversation today. We got to do a pre-recording chat a couple weeks ago, and we had so much fun. <laughs> and I know we were like, we could ping all over the place and go down so many rabbit holes. But we decided to really focus on neurodiversity in children and especially how that may intersect with attachment and just different resources and strategies that can be used because I know that's an area of your work that you've focused a lot on. So before we do that, you know, I really love to bring more of you into this interview. And so I would like to please invite you to share an attachment memory that feels impactful to who you are and the work that you're doing and maybe why the work. Gosh, um, there's so many. I think the one that's coming to mind today is actually a memory with my sister. My sister has spina bifida which is a congenital disorder that, so she was born with this and it's a hole in the spinal column. And depending on where on the spinal column it occurs, it affects different organ functions. And so for her, it affects her bladder, motor ability. Um, She had hydrocephaly, the excess liquid in the brain, and she needed a shunt to drain that into her abdomen. And so she had eight surgeries the first couple years of her life. And for me, it was, she was my doll. I'm her, I'm the oldest and I consider her, she was my baby, not my mom's baby, she was my <laughs> baby. And so pretty quickly, my mom saw that I was wanted to be very actively a part of her, raising her and, and feeding her and all these different things. And yet I, I remember with her, it was unique because we had to use a catheter to change her diaper. It wasn't that she would just urinate like other babies or urinate like any other adult. So that was really different. We had to talk about anatomy at a very young age. We had to talk about cleanliness and respect. And, and I remember 
asking her, is this okay? Like as a little girl, just being like checking in with if she was okay with me approaching her and taking out the diaper and like if she was warm and like comfortable and and all these different things that are start to cue you into those signals of like if someone's regulated, if someone's okay, if someone feels safe and secure, that started at like two, you know, if mm. not before, but that was a very clear memory that I had and that really affected the rest of my life because I could easily have been like, oh no, ew, you know, all this stuff, pee and urine as a little mm -hmm. kid. And I was like, no, this is just a part of life. This is a, what we need to, for caring for her. And it made me really aware of like being very um, open and discussing bodily functions and how that's a part of how we can build rapport and trust and just like any other aspect of interactions. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that vulnerable, important memory with your little sister. And I love starting with this question. I had a, a, another guest, Nat, who said, we should just be asking this question on like the first date <laughs> because so much comes up about who we are. And so the fact that you've come to focus so much of your work on children with who may have special abilities, as you call it, um, their own magic and differences that we can celebrate rather than looking at that as, as deficits. And that's exactly how you just described your sister, that these weren't deficits, they were differences that helped us learn what her needs were and how to meet her needs. So that's that's beautiful. So let's talk about neurodiversity and how you understand what that is in your work and why is it important not only to just recognize it, but also to celebrate it? Well, for me, it's an umbrella term. It's a very inclusive term. Um, it, a lot of people think it's a medical term, but it is not. It's a non-medical term that encompasses just differences in brain functioning. Now, beyond that, how I like to look at it is it's an actual like evolution of the of the species in a lot of way. That's how I frame it because I see people who are neurodivergent as a gift. I would love to have it be embraced more in the world. I would love for people to have a lot less shame around mm -hmm. being neurodivergent so they get to get the supports and the resources and the connections that they really would like to have as a part of their lives. And so I was thinking about how to do this and describe it in a way that could resonate with people. And it reminded me of a book, if you wouldn't mind me reading an excerpt from it. I have That's a copy sweet. of this book. It's called, Would You Teach a Fish to Climb a Tree? Have mm. you heard of it? No, I haven't. Yeah. I love learning about new books. It's, uh, you see, as you can see, it's not that big. Um, it's a different take on kids with ADD, ADHD, OCD, and autism. And those are probably the the terms and the diagnoses that are most commonly associated with neurodivergence but it's there's so many more beyond that even like learning disabilities or or um cerebral palsy some people will put that in there it's just a lot of examples remember it's only it's about the differences in brain functioning and that applies to a lot of different things including some people that don't have any diagnoses at all but that their brains are functioning mm -hmm. differently so i really come at it from a very inclusive place and in this book um the would you teach a fish to climb a tree in chapter three it says what if your children are perfect and so the little excerpt underneath, this is written by Dr. Dane here, um, Anne Maxwell, she's a licensed social worker, and Gary Douglas, Gary M. Douglas, who is the founder of Access Consciousness. And so they, I'm gonna hip, hop around a little bit, but it says, in the process of working with a number of great kids, we've seen that they have many abilities, talents, and gifts that go unrecognized by teachers, parents, and people in the medical and psychological community. You moved down a little bit further. It says the reality is that they pick things up in a totally different manner. And we need to step up and find out how they learn, not try to teach them using methods that might have worked for us, but definitely don't work for them. And then moving further along in this chapter, it says we would like to re-reference to the point of view that they are quote unquote special needs children. They are actually special challenge special talents children and so for us we call them x-men after the marvel comic superhero team composed of mutants with an x gene 
who use their extra powers and abilities for the benefit of humanity. For us, it's a term of affection. The X-Men are here with us on the planet to make waves. They are a mutation that is an expansion of the species, but they are being looked at as though they are a limitation. So they, at the end of the chapter, they say, we ask that you don't see your kids as wrong, no matter what they've been labeled. Look at your kids not from the wrongness of them, but from the rightness of them. And this is the, this is one of the books that I literally hand copies of it to every teacher, every parent, every clinician I work with. I'm like, there's not a week that goes by that I don't use some tool in that book. And mm. I think it's really important for us to celebrate it because they are the innovators, the dreamers, the artists, the people that are creating something that out of nothing, out of air, that you're like, where did this even come from? I wouldn't even have thought of this. It is often from people who are neurodivergent. They're, they're creating beyond this reality and the limitations and paradigms and the constrictions that a lot of us feel like we have to stay within this box of. And they're like, mm-hmm. nope, that's not my box. I'm, right. I'm choosing else. And I would love more of that in the world. So I think it's really important to celebrate them, to embrace them. And to, but while doing that, making sure that they have the supports and resources to shine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we'll get into some of that too. So are we seeing a cultural shift? I feel like I'm hearing more about neurodiversity and celebrating it. And the way you just described it from that book is, is so beautiful words of wisdom that we all need to be reminded about. Um, but, but yeah, tell, are we seeing a cultural shift in, in terms of embracing it more and trying to understand it more versus judging it? And I know we've got work to do, but what are, what are you noticing in, in that? I, I love yet there is a cultural shift. I think it depends on which country, um, and which cultures we're talking about. Like, I don't think it's quite had the global acceptance that that I would love to see. There's an autism summit that's an international autism summit happening. I believe it's, is it October, November? It's coming up pretty soon. And I'm really excited about that because I'd love to get this international perspective because a lot of countries are still not just not even supporting or diagnosing or, or giving the different resources. They're still being locked up. They're still being completely marginalized like they don't exist in Mm -hmm. countries and cultures. So uh, I do get that in a lot of the first world countries, a lot of countries like the United States and Canada and things like that, there is not just an acceptance, but it's a source of pride. And that's Mm -hmm. been really really cool to see. Uh, Having more books, having more podcasts, having more Instagram people and YouTubers who, who are who are helping people be like, how do you know you're someone with autism as an adult? Maybe you haven't been diagnosed yet and you've been suspecting this or have had an inklings as you've been hearing about some of these whispers through social media or through movies. Like maybe it is true for you, maybe it's not. Like here are some ways that you could know like that there's a, a more of a dialogue. I think that that's so awesome. And that's all that's really required as initial step is to be willing to have these dialogues. And so that's why I love being on shows like yours that is looking at this, because I think a lot of people are wondering if maybe they have neurodivergence, but they're not quite clear on if it's something that should even be investigated and what are the benefits of them looking into this for themselves. Mm-hmm. And also that is so much of, of, how they come to know themselves, especially as children, is reflected back in how their their parents, caregivers, and teachers are seeing them. And, and so much of it is about that mindset that you talked about. Is this something that we're celebrating and seeking to learn more about how their brains work versus, like I said, more of that rigidity in terms of expectations and judgments? So, so let's talk about more about how neurodivergence might intersect and possibly challenge attachment relationships. And so first I want to name that the research on children with neurodivergence and attachment, there's just a lot more we need to learn. Um, There's a lot of knowledge gaps and a lot of the research has been more focused on children on with autism spectrum disorder. And, um, and so rather than get into all the nuances of the research, I think, you know, you're not a research series and you're a practitioner. So I I think we would, our, our viewers and listeners would also 
want to know more about what do we do? Um, because we know that children with neurodivergence, that attachment plays just as important function for them as it does with quote unquote neurotypical children. And a lot of the research has shown that there really aren't significant group differences. Um, but I can also imagine that for children with neurodivergence, with things like autism spectrum disorder, that they may have a harder time more clearly communicating their attachment needs. And they may have some sensory differences and communication differences and regulation differences that could impact and challenge attachment. So, so what do you see in your work? And most importantly, what, what can we do? So much. There's so much we can do. There's so much that I've seen. And, you know, just to give some context, I've been doing this work for 17 years professionally. Like, so it's been part of my life since I was two with my sister and then my brother having diaphragmatic hernia and he's part of hearing. So he, both of them needed a speech therapist, funny enough. My sister for stuttering, which was completely unexpected because it has nothing to do with spina bifida, but it runs in my family. And my mm -hmm. brother for being part of hearing. And for one of the things that I see, no matter what type of difference there is, is with, with kiddos and with adults that have neurodivergence, the caregivers, the parents have to deal with a type of loss and processing that loss then that those who are developing typically and have the parents who are raising kids that are developing typically don't have to deal with in the same way. Maybe they're, oh, their dreams of, oh, I wanted to be a football star, but he's looking at being an artist is not the same as, oh, I thought that they were going to walk at this age or they were going to communicate in this way, or they were going to always look at me and they were going to have this type of job is completely different when you're, when you're raising someone that is neurodivergent and you're realizing that this is something that's going to be a part of their lives. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I hear, no matter where I meet the parent or caregiver, they're still processing the difference between what their hopes and dreams were for their child and and what's possible and mm -hmm. really making sure that as they're doing that that they're not that they're not limiting their child that they're still advocating that they're still speaking up so i think that's a a, a definite factor and it's something that i do a lot of like social working through uh with my parents to process a lot of that to make sure that they are feeling heard and seen because like you said Sometimes they're like, does my child even know I'm here? Mm -hmm. uh, and depending on where they are in their journey. So one of the things that I love about this piece is that those who are neurodivergent, they really invite us to look at attachment differently. We can't use the same outward criteria that a lot of other people would use. So for instance, I don't require that my students that I work with look me in the eye all the time. One, mm -hmm. it may not actually be culturally appropriate because there's a lot of cultures that they don't look you in the eye and that's a sign of respect right but because we're a lot of times working in the united states that's the sign of disrespect or inattention if you're mm -hmm. not looking someone in the eye so what i do do is i encourage them to do it in the context especially as they're getting older for their benefit to be more successful for them to not be as ostracized but i have to show them why it would be beneficial for them and as a little kid they're not necessarily gonna care as much about those other people. And then I start from, well, where are they connecting with me? And I help the parents highlight that. Where are they trying to connect with you? Where are they building rapport with you? Is it, if it's not only relying on eye contact, is it when they just touch you on the side a little bit, that little tap tap when they're checking mm -hmm. in on you? Is it that quick glance to know where you are in the room before they go back to that yellow truck? You know, where, what are those little moments that they are showing you and acknowledging your presence and making sure that you're a part of their world, even as fleeting as it is. And then we can build from there. But when we don't start with that acknowledgement of where there's already attachments forming, where they are feeling secure and regulated and cared for by you, and you focus on all the things that are missing, you don't get to receive from those things that are there as much and you can't expand upon them. So mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that I see over and over again that I think as clinicians, a lot of people will will slip into sometimes as well. Um, can you hear me okay? I see that there's like a Wi-Fi signal thing. You're good? Yes. Yeah, we're good. Um, so as clinicians, it's a lot of times we are taught in schools and in our trainings when we were in grad school to look at the strengths 
and the challenges. And then over time, when we're trying to expedite meetings, when we're trying to get through paperwork, when we're trying to you know, talk to the parents really quickly because maybe they have time constraints, we may forget to acknowledge where those attachments are happening, where there is progress being made, where we can like look at that, that difference as something that's a gift and then bring it up even more and shine a light on it even more. And we'll focus on, oh, they need to work on this. They're missing this. Oh, they haven't made as much progress with this, which is not going to be great for the kid because, yep, they're listening. And they're not going to be great for the parent who's also listening and then passing those projections and those assumptions and those points of views onto the kid through each of their interactions. So I find it to be really, really important as clinicians to highlight those strengths, highlight how their difference is a gift because it has such such huge rippling out effects on mm-hmm. how the parents then choose to the lens that the parents chooses to see those interactions through. Is it oh, they don't ever know I'm here at all. They don't really care about me, that I don't feel secure. I'm not providing a safe haven for them. Or is it that, oh, I'm providing it in a different way or they feel safe when I'm doing this or I'm really noticing that when I do this thing or approach it in this way, they calm down faster. Ah, what if I did that more consciously, more intentionally? What if I planned it ahead for those situations? It makes it, these little small tweaks have such a beautiful expansive impact and that's what i like to look at more and more because it is different um but i i i felt i find it to be so gratifying because you can't take any of it for granted like somebody that is not neurodivergent people will just take all that stuff for granted it's like no every little bit of it is like there you are Mm -hmm. that showed up there we we got a giggle we got a hug we got we got eye contact we have some shared attention okay cool like all of Mm -hmm. that is when it comes together, each of those pieces is so, so beautiful. Yes. It's learning a different way of dancing together. And the lens that you talk about, I think is that's the power when the parent or adult can understand that this isn't, you know, that they they can rewrite the narrative of this isn't a rejection of me. And this is, this is the differences in how my child communicates and perceives the world and how their brain is operating. And so if I can can tune into that more, attune to that, then maybe we can figure out a new dance. It's, and, and grieving the loss of the dance that you thought that it was going to be. And especially if this adult has a lot of interactions or their own children who are neurotypical and it might come a lot easier and be more easily reciprocated. And then that, and then now you have a child or maybe it's your first child and you're like, well, this isn't what was in the parenting books. (laughs) So I think it's, you know, one of the takeaways already is like, how, how do we get parents and caregivers and teachers more support in how they conceptualize that lens, like having somebody like you alongside to just offer different ways of looking at this. Um, And, you know, I know that's, that's a bigger cultural question too, because oftentimes our culture doesn't provide enough of those supports, but, but I love, you know, centering us in that the lens is so powerful. We don't have control about that lens. We don't have control of maybe bureaucracy or access to education, all these different things, but that is something that we have control over. And that's what I I like to invite people to is to look at where you can have control, where you are, where you can use your own strengths as a parent and a caregiver and expand upon that. Mm -hmm. Yes. So other attachments that children with neurodivergence you know, come in contact with as they're socializing, both in early childhood and school age, and and how do how does their neurodivergence um, potentially impact relationships with peers, and what can we do to support those relationships? Um, there's so much I can talk about with this. Like, this is something that I'm actually exploring and leaning into even more because a lot of my, my time has been with like the early childhood, like birth, I did early intervention for a long time. So birth to three. And then I, and then I also did a lot of school age children with like elementary school. And I've worked with some adults, young adults that have different neurodivergence and definitely adults in, in coaching and things like that. And more and more, 
I'm not sure why this is this this piece of peer groups and friendships and like the socializing is coming up more and more and more in a different way than it ever has before. And so I've been really trying to think of things, how to frame it and how to like have a framework, even for myself as a clinician of how to look look at this. And I, I wanted to share a resource with your listeners that I found that I love, love, love that yes. has been really, really cool. Um, and it was a cool way to, I can talk about this using this with both younger folk as they're going into like those later years of elementary school into middle school, high school. And then also it's very accessible and and useful for adults as well. Like it doesn't, it doesn't dumb things down, but it makes things very clear and useful. And what, what it, this is an Instagram account that I found as algorithms do. Sometimes the algorithms work for your favor, y'all. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> They're not always against you. Um, and it's called, uh, autism underscore happy underscore place so autism happy place with underscores in between each of the words okay and they have this post about autistic love languages and and it's it's has, what i love about them is that they do a lot of like cartoony kind of graphics it makes it very playful and whimsical and super cute um and i looked through this and i was like oh let me see what these love languages because i also love talking about love languages with all of my relationship coaching and things like that, mm-hmm. that I do, it's, it's a very powerful framework. And they were talking about with parallel. I actually think I queued it up um, for our discussion today. Yep. So I, I talked about it uh, and I was looking through this and it talks about these love languages. One of them is parallel play. It's not always about the eye contact, but they want to be close to you and have this proximity, but they're next to you and how that, that, that's, it's not just for people who have autism that that's beneficial, that they like to do that. Like the people who are activity partners, right? That they want to just share an activity with you and they're, they're having that quality time um, and they're looking at that. So really encouraging those parallel play and not feeling like the children have to always be facing right directly toward each other and then or doing those quick glances. Like I love the shift in our field from talking about communicative gaze and eye contact and it has to be like sustained eye contact versus fleeting sustained eye contact or eye, fleeting eye contact to faces doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the eyes all the time just to your faces mm-hmm. like that's that those are these beautiful transitional steps that has been really helpful and then being willing to talk about how so-and-so not looking at you when they're talking to you doesn't mean they aren't listening. Doesn't mean that they dis- are disrespectful to you. I, I have those conversations between the peers because I want them to learn the language of how to advocate for themselves later on. Hey, this is what's going on in my world. I'm really listening to you when I'm doing this. And I can even tell you, you said this, this, and this, you are wearing this and this, your your voice changed in this way. And I, I noticed that that means that you felt this way. Like, so by, by framing it and talking about their love languages, like I'm showing my caring for you through sitting next to you and doing this activity with you. I'm showing my caring for you. And then one of the other ones they talk about on this post and Instagram is unusual gifts. I was like, oh my gosh, that explains so much about my friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's why they got, I just loved it for them. I was like, that's just mm-hmm. them, right? But when I looked at it from the framework of like, oh, and they're also a lot of my friends are neurodivergent. I was like, oh, yeah, it's very personalized. It's unique. It's usually not any gift that you would get anywhere else from anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's their love language. So I def- I'm not going to go through all of them, but I definitely invite you to check out that post. I love what they're posting about and there are different images and things. It's a great resource for families. They have like t-shirts and stuff so people can like shout out their awesomeness with the different images and t-shirts. And they show how they, they do look at the sensory piece. They do look at unmasking and and helping without words. Like, okay, I'll pick up this stuff for you and I'll pick you up from the airport and these different ways that are these gestures maybe you would see it as like an acts of service from the usual love language mm-hmm. um, vernacular. Uh, but I think that having those conversations with peers is really, really important to close the gap. And it also reduces the stigmatization of people who mm-hmm. are divergent, that marginalization that is still way too prevalent. 
Well, I love broadening the love languages and and how we might think about that in relationship to children with neurodivergence. So we can be sure to link that Instagram account to our show notes as well. And I also appreciate that that this intersects not just with children with neurodivergence, but children with, with trauma and attachment loss you know, eye contact can can also at times feel very threatening. And so we have to reframe our expectations of what we're expecting to get reciprocated and what we might think is so-called respectful is actually really challenging to their nervous systems um, for a variety of reasons that we want to try to understand versus impose. So I can't wait to, to check that out. So thank you for sharing that resource with yeah, us. I love it. It's so cute. It's so, so <laughs> cute. It's like, ah, and it, and it's, it just, that's what I love. It's like, there's, it's just makes it all like sparkly and yay. And that's the other thing. There needs to be more like positive, like expansive, inspiring representation out there around these discussions. Yes. A hundred percent. So do you have a case that comes to mind? I think that might help bring some of this to life of a child that you've worked with, with neurodivergence and their family. And and what are some things that you were able to do, especially to kind of move them more towards that celebratory lens and mindset? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking right now of a teenage mom I worked with in my first couple of years in early intervention. So I think I met her and her son when they were, when he was like, gosh, maybe like a year old around there at most a year and a half. And so with early intervention, you go until three, you are providing those services until three. And mom was really concerned because as a teenage mom, she wasn't really being heard by doctors and by professionals. She wasn't being heard by her parents. Her parents actually kicked her out. And so she was saying with the with the parents of the dad, um, the baby's dad. Okay. And and pretty quickly we re- he this child was having a lot of language delays, a lot of things were going on. And one of the things that we had to look at was like he was constantly breaking out in eczema and having rashes and all these different things. And one of the things that as a clinician I look at, instead of being like, okay, secure attachment has to look this certain way, like we talked about earlier, there's infinite ways that it can look like. And so I asked myself, okay, what does secure attachment look like for this person or with this person? And then go from there. And what are some other ways this can look? And where is it already showing up? And so I would see that he was really calmer when he was getting these oatmeal, this oat milk and oatmeal baths to soothe the skin. Mm -hmm. And he was also a lot calmer with certain music and things like that and movement. He really wanted to be moving and on the go. And so with us trying to do language tasks, sitting and all the time was not going to work. And yet he, we were able to use the gift and the reward of movement and of getting up and about and doing certain things to help him sit longer for some of those things that needed more attention, more concentrated drill and practice. And pretty quickly we found out that he had, as we were attuning to him and really asking a lot of questions about, hey, what do we know? And what's he telling us with his behavior? And how is he trying to connect with us, even though he's miserable with the eczema and and this this respiratory infection here, this other upheaval there? It was that he had tons and tons of undiagnosed allergies. And mom, I got to give it to her, even though she was a teenage mom, she was probably one of the most on it moms I've ever met, even to this day. Mm -hmm. And she kept asking the doctors over and over again, could you please check his allergies? Could you please check his allergies? But being on Medicaid, they were, and being a teenage mom, they kept ignoring her. And so she was, she wasn't, she was constantly looking at, this is getting in the way of the progress I know is possible for my child, but also I can't even hug him the same way because of his skin being so irritated. So she had to find other ways to give those hugs to calm him down, like the bass I mentioned, but also she, we found different blankets that would not irritate his skin and that she could kind of hold on to him and he would be, and he'd be calmer. We had to really think out of the box for this kid because we were together advocating for him to get allergy testing for a very long time, like an unacceptable mm. long length of time. 
So when we finally was diagnosed with like, I, like just a whole page of very severe allergies, we had to look at changes to his diet. So that changed his energy levels and his concentration and his behavior changed, his communication started to thrive. Everything shifted from us not being like, oh, this isn't possible because of this. This He's always going to be miserable. He's always going to be sick. We just have to deal with it, which with what unfortunately the, a lot of her family and the doctors were saying, let's just wait it out, wait it out. It's like, wait out when your child is crying, sometimes mm-hmm. screaming, like he was bleeding. His skin was bleeding from how much he was scratching mm. the itching. It's That's the worst case scenario to see your child so miserable like that. It's so unfortunate. And so through all of this, we were able to soar beyond it. He, they, they were able to find different ways during all of these challenges to stay connected to have him be more regulated as much as possible. And they still are in touch with me now. He is like a teenager now. It's crazy. (laughs) Mom sends me photos and like, here, this is what he's doing now. And thank you so much. And it was these, it was this foundational formative moment that set the stage for the rest of his life because mom didn't buy into I'm horrible because my child is miserable or because my child isn't getting the supports medically that he's supposed to, or these things are going on with his health. Like a lot of us will use that. It's very tempting as caregivers, parents, even loved ones to think that this is going to create a separation. But if we didn't have that point of view, I wonder what we would be aware of that we could use to build that rapport and that bond and strengthen it. And it just has to be creative. We just got to mm-hmm. be creative about it. And that was one of those those kiddos that I was like, man, I mean, it's what, as a clinician, you're like, what else do I try? What else? You know, like, pull out all the tools from the box. And the mom was so open. She was just like, whatever it takes, just tell me, I will, I'll try anything. And so she tried all of it and most of it worked. And so I was like, yay. And now he's just, he's doing so great. And I'm just so happy to keep it in touch with them it's one of those like success stories that i was like yeah this is why i'm on this planet Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) (laughs) and i love that you have that continuity and are still in touch with them which i think also speaks to not only what you what you did and what you tried but the power of your relationship with this young mom that you probably represented a secure attachment base for her, that she was able to have somebody on her side as, and coaching her through this process with, with her son who was presenting with these difficulties and trying to figure out what he was communicating and why. So such a beautiful story. And speaking of early intervention, I also used to work in early intervention and, and one of the, the Yes, exactly. It's a very different setting, right? <laughs> yes. And one of the one of the beauties of early intervention, A, we're in the home, we're invited guests in the home. And, you know, we lose a lot of that when, when children go into, not to say that there's not still a place for them to go to school and to, to do office-based interventions as well, but there's something so intimate about being an invited guest into the home. And the other piece that's really beautiful about early intervention is the power of a multidisciplinary team. And so when we talk about children with neurodivergence and you've got all of these different perspectives who are hopefully, and we know this doesn't always happen professionally, but, um, and sometimes we have to be that advocate when it doesn't happen, but if, or hopefully coming at it with that same celebratory mindset of seeking to understand versus judging, um, that the power of a team is, is really needed, um, sometimes. And so I just wonder like what what do we do when children move out of of early intervention? How can we advocate for a multidisciplinary approach or what have you seen in your work series with with the power of teams? Yeah, yeah. Well, before I get into the multidisciplinary thing, there was something really powerful that you said right before that about how it was a beautiful acknowledgement that I, I wanted to that I want to thank you for about the rapport that I continue to have with that teenage mom. I've been really lucky that it's actually not just her. There's been quite a number of people that I I worked with their kids and with them at a very young age years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Now now they're applying to college. Or it's crazy. It's so cool. And I think the key thing too is what you were alluding to. I think which is 
to be an effective clinician with these parents, you have to also create a secure attachment with them. They need mm-hmm. to feel secure with you. They need to feel like you trust them, that you hear them, that you're using them and see them as an expert on their child just as much as you're an expert in this area, but not on their child. They mm-hmm. really are the expert of their child. And I say that from the first day. I'm like, mm-hmm. I just have different training. I'm gonna I'm gonna point out some stuff, but I want you to feel free to to let me know what you think about this, if you think it's gonna work, if it's not gonna work, if we need to tweak it. And it's very much a partnership. It's a collaboration. So the first part of that multidisciplinary team, getting back to your question, is you as a professional, if you are working with that family and that family creating a good dyad, a strong Mm -hmm. dyad, and then adding on from there and knowing when it's time to refer out, knowing when it's time to add to the team. Like I did a whole call, excuse me, I did a whole call um on there's no one size fits all i think it was my august being a different possibility for families call i do these free virtual calls each month on a different topic for families and the families tell me well could you talk about this Can you talk about that so i did this one it was all and one of the things that we talked about in that in that virtual like webinar was when it's when there are signs that are telling you it's time to make a change in your team Mm. So for a lot of the the parents that we're seeing as clinicians, they might already have some people on their team. And it's like, how are they working together? What what are you hoping to achieve with them? What are the communication systems within that team? Is it email? Is it paper? Is it that log where you're passing it between each other from the school to the home? Is it, you know, those now some schools that I work with, they have the different applications that they they send out stuff through the through text or through these little tablets every place is different. So one of the things that I ask with my parents and with the kids is like, which is the one that's going to work the best for your family? Because again, it's not one size fits all. Are you Mm -hmm. more of a visual person? Are you more experiential? Do you need that, that conversation and, and maybe having like a, an appointment on a monthly basis with the teacher or with your other people that are your multidisciplinary team, like really looking at as a caregiver and as a parent, what is your learning style in addition to knowing what your child's learning needs are? Because they sometimes are different. Mm-hmm. And then keeping that in mind and then having people in your team that you're adding on that respect and honor that, that are willing to present information to you in a way that is that is that you can process it with ease quickly. Because as parents and caregivers, they're on the go. They have maybe multiple kids. They have their they have spouses. They have their jobs. So making it so they don't have to take as much time to process, it's going to be really key for effective treatment and for effective outcomes as a clinician. And for the, the people that are asking for your services, you're going to get better results that way. Um, I also like considering, because I, I, I work with all ages, so... If someone's looking at for a multidisciplinary team and they're a child and it's a parent that's looking for it, it's very different than as an adult, right? Um, and for adults, it looking at their their learning style, but also what's the setting that helps them expand their world and like expand their comfort zone? Because a lot of this is involving expanding their world and adding these new people and perspectives and exercises and strategies, but it's also they can't go to their default which is their comfort zone or mm-hmm. asking them to do something that's a little uncomfortable, a little mm-hmm. stretchy, stretchy, as my mom likes to say. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you might get them a little crispy uh, <laughs> initially as they're, as they're trying it out, especially if they really want to do things really well and they want to do things perfectly. And I say, you know what, can we just let ourselves be a little bit messy with this on the way to greatness with it? Like, let's just, let's get messy. Mm-hmm. They're like, depending on my people, because some of them don't like mess either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Respond to that differently. But that's one of those key factors is looking at what what you'd like to have more clarity and ease with. In what areas would you like to have that support? And in, in what are the ways that are best for you setting wise? Is it one to one, more personalized? Is it group coaching or therapy? Is it a combination? Is it learning through podcasts? A lot of my parents, they're listening to podcasts and they're listening to my webinar while they're driving, while they're picking up, dropping off, doing errands, cleaning. So everybody is different. And and I invite 
people listening to not try to do it the way other people do it, but to do it the way that's actually going to work for you and your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being able to, to get support about voicing your needs, knowing what your learning needs are as family and caregivers, I, I hear that that's a really important piece of this too, especially when working with a team. And also I think just reminding our, our audience, those that are, that are doing any sort of professional work in this field, that we can all get into our silos about how we're looking at things. And especially with neurodivergence, like it's challenging us to broaden and look at things differently. So bringing in, even if this person may not be on the treatment team, but bringing in an occupational therapist to get their perspective on sensory or a speech and language therapist to get their input on communication. It's so important when when we're talking about children with neurodivergence to, to just broaden our own professional lens and understanding and, and bringing in these people and resources when we can. And I know there's barriers to that, but I, I think that we, we need to still keep that message alive and, and remind people to advocate for that and seek that out. I agree. I agree. And I've been really fortunate. Like my friends acknowledged this first. And I was like, I guess that's true for me. And then I was like, well, how can I actually apply that to my business more? And what I'm referring to is I love connecting people with other people. Like it's my jam. It's <laughs> one of those things that as a, my friends will tell me, CDs, I know if you don't know the answer to this, you know someone that knows the answer to this. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's probably true. And so mm-hmm. I've now been more conscientious in actually creating a database of people that I refer people to or like can go to for different things. Like I have a sleep coach on my database. I have a nutritionist a pediatric nutritionist. I have a neuropsychologist. And these are people, because I have an international business, that they will talk to people no matter where they are in the world. They'll do a Zoom call. They'll give you a reference. They Or their network is so big that they might have somebody in that state where that person is, right? So mm-hmm. that's been really cool to see and and really looking outside of, of just your area sometimes. I know that that can be um, concerning to some people, but if you're not finding it in your region, you might need to go outside of that to make sure that you or your family is getting the supports that they really deserve and that they really need. Mm-hmm. So you can be seen in totality. Yes. So let's talk briefly about, not that it sh- this should be a brief topic, but also just in the interest of time, self-care, which can bring up a whole lot. And as we know, it's not just bubble baths and massages, but especially in the context of attachment for, for parents and caregivers, you know, there's, they're trying so hard to, to learn, like I said, it's that grief of, of the old dance. How do I learn this new dance? What's coming up for me and my story. And so what are some things you've done to support the adults with how to take care of themselves so that they can be as present as possible and available and attuned in their attachment relationships with their children. It's so funny you should say that because that's probably the thing I talk about the most with my parents because they're like, oh, it's all about my child. It's all about my child. And I'm like, hi, how are you doing? How are you Mm -hmm. sleeping? Are you going on dates with your hubby? Like, are you, do you have hobbies? Like, where is that space for you in this that you're filling up your cup to be, to show up for you and for your child? Like I check in on that. And that's one of the things that I think makes me very different than other clinicians. Like, even if it's two minutes, I make a point of doing that. It's very powerful and has, and the parents by being seen and heard in that way, are more invested in what you recommend for their child too, so that it's more likely for them to to actually apply those exercises and do that home practice that you're asking them to do. Um, one of the other things with self-care, I actually did a whole call on this again in January um, on one of the being a different possibility calls. And self-care, like you said, it's not just a, a bubble bath here, uh, a, a massage there, a walk. It's for me, I look at it as the systems that you have in place to continually filling your cup, your your cup up that is your default. Like how brushing your teeth, you brush your teeth every day. You shower hopefully every day or every other day for some of the kids, right? Like it's a regular thing that 
is showing you your respect for yourself and is is nourishing you and your body so that you have the energetic resources, the mental, emotional resources, the self-regulation to invite someone that may not be so regulated to regulation. But if you're not regulated, how are you gonna invite somebody else to regulation? Mm -hmm. And so I talked to my parents about that, like, hey, are you modeling calm? Are you modeling regulation? Are you modeling the things that you'd like your child now and in the future to do? Do you want your child to be burned out and overwhelmed? Because that's what you're telling me you are. Oh, no. Well, they're watching. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, being an adult means overwhelmed and burned out. And nope, not going to do that. I don't want that. Right. So th- really looking at them and seeing how they're really an example to their children and including the self-care piece is an eye opener. And then the other piece, too, that I think is really important for all, all parents, but definitely, definitely for parents who are raising children that are neurodivergent is this piece of like by you doing everything for them all the time you are maybe unconsciously unintentionally giving them the message that they're not capable of doing that yes yes i've seen that a lot especially with the early intervention families that that i used to work with right and so i was like is that the message that you want to send and of course all of them are like no no i don't want to send that message i'm like okay so let's Find a way that what are these little things slowly but surely that you can start handing over and gifting to them because it is a gift. Each time you hand something over, you're like, you got this, honey. You're mm-hmm. magic. You are powerful. You are capable of this. I am here when you need me, but I believe in you. That is not a small thing. That is not a small thing. And so my a lot of my parents, too, they were like, I don't think I was raised that way. Yeah. So oh, that I'm, I'm replicating some of those things that my parents did. And yeah, you're right. My mom's tired and burnt out. She has tons more wrinkles. She looks like 10 years older than her actual age. And I don't want to walk down that path. I was like, I don't want you to walk down that path either, but it's your choice. Mm-hmm. So how can I support you in this? So really looking at the systems that the family has for self-care is really, really important. And that's one of the things that I do throughout my work is really looking at how they can embed those different exercises and recommendations in their day-to-day routines instead of feeling like it's another separate thing that they have to do between my appointments with them, between this appointment and the next one, or between this appointment and the next appointment with the other therapist. Mm-hmm. If it's embedded in their routines, it's more likely to be integrated. It's more likely to reduce the overwhelm of the parents. So then they are easier they have an easier time doing it and it fills up their cup they don't feel like it's it's adding to the balls that are juggling and these parents yes. have so many balls mm-hmm. yeah more of those micro moments that they can build in throughout their day so you've mentioned some really cool offerings that you do with these monthly calls what tell us more about what you have to offer and any other because you've already mentioned some really cool resources too. Um, any other resources that that our listeners might want to know about? Well, I definitely wanted your listeners to have some books and some tips that I love using. Like I mentioned the Would You Teach a Fish to Climb a Tree book, right, that I read from earlier. But I also wrote down some other ones. There was this really cool book that I just found out about. So I can't say that I read it, but I'm like super excited about it. Um, It's called, where is that link? Oh, Good Different. Good Different Mm -hmm. by Megan Eden Kuyat. It's actually a young adult book. And I found it on Amazon and it's all about how this journey that this, that this young person goes through in wanting to always be normal and trying to fit into this certain parameter and it's building up and building up and building up when it finally explodes and how she starts to embrace how she's different, but it's a good different in her life. And I was like, how many people does that apply to? Like, oh my gosh, that is. So, so cool. So I'm excited to read that one. Um, I also found this book that's called How to Handle Neurotypicals, a field survival guide for the neurodivergent. So it's really different. It's super sarcastic. It's looking at it like, like, okay, these neurotypical people, it's like (laughs) as if you were in the jungle and you're studying neurotypical (laughs) people and like how they're acting is the weird thing instead of how Mm -hmm. you're acting is the weird thing. And it just totally flips the script and it's Mm -hmm. really, really cool. I definitely recommend that one. Um, And then from a a professional standpoint, um, 
I love, a lot of us know about it, but I'm going to reiterate it again. The Sensational Kids. Have you heard mm-hmm. of this book? Mm-hmm. I love, love, love it for those that are dealing with sensory processing disorder. Um, and I love this resource because it's in English and in Spanish. And I work with a lot of Spanish speaking individuals. Um, it's Listening to My Body, a guide to helping kids understand the connection between their sensations in quote in, in parentheses, what the heck are those? Mm-hmm. And feeling so that they can better, they can get better at figuring out what they need. I know, super long title, but the author is Gabby Garcia and really accessible. An OT, an occupational therapist, recommended me that series. She has a bunch of different books. And I was like, oh, this is this is totally on point. This is really, really helpful. And so I've been using that with my kiddos and with my parents quite a bit. Um, me personally, what I do is I mentioned a little bit like I like working with routines and systems for individuals and families. So I work with with busy individuals and busy families like that's the biggest thing. Like I have to make it simple. I have to make it something that's sustainable, that's replicatable um, and that is something that they feel like it's within their scope. And I I approach it using and looking at their unique gifts and strengths. And then I create a personalized plan, be it for the individual or for the family that looks at what they'd like to have more clarity and ease with, what they'd like to have more forward momentum with. And we create a plan step-by-step that guides them through for them having more of that, really leveraging their unique way of communicating, connecting and learning. Mm -hmm. And it's been super, super gratifying work. And it really came from me starting as a speech language pathologist and i still have an ongoing caseload i still have private clients with that but my clients being like i'd like a little bit more i'd like to be able to advocate for myself or for my child i'd like to deal with conflict and resolution better especially when i'm talking with like teachers or with my spouse about what we're choosing around around my my kiddos and i'm like okay cool so i started expanding 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 from there then it's like okay i'd like to talk to my spouse about what i truly desire in our relationship because we haven't (laughs) gone on dates we are not really being intimate because we're so focused on the kids and so it just totally expanded from there because my people were asking for it. And I was like, all right, let's look at how to step into this. And I just added more trainings and kept adapting it with feedback over time. And now I've been doing that aspect for about six years, five, six years now. Um, And it's been, it's just gratifying in a different way than the speech and language and feeding work that I was doing before. And I know, and I love that you have some free offerings and and so people can also learn and you resource guides. Um, The one you sent me was being a different possibility for children. So all of that, you know, we'll make sure to direct people to your website where they can learn more and reach out if they're interested in in working with you because you are such a gem in this field. Uh, To to send us (laughs) off series, um, what do you envision and hope the future will look like for children, families, and communities in the context of neurodiversity and attachment? I want them to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm like more of this in the world. Like, and again, the only way that can happen, and maybe that's why the resources aren't being made available. I think that there's some at, at some level. Some of the politicians, some of the bureaucrats, some of the the policymakers, all of that are possibly aware that they are such a gift and it would completely change the paradigm of our planet that they want to keep the status quo. And yeah, imagine that. <laughs> yeah, these are the movers and shakers. These are the people that are already changing the world. And so I want them to have the, the love, the adoration, the supports, the resources, the energy, all of the things and more, whatever else they would like, that really makes sure that they see that the world is better with them in it than without them in it. Because mm-hmm. unfortunately, I think a lot of these people, children, adults, families, they're being told either implicitly or explicitly that the world would be better without them. And that is an unacceptable point of view to me. Mm-hmm. I I do not agree with that at all. And I know that my life has been absolutely enhanced by my siblings who have special abilities and by every single one of the people that I've worked with that are neurodivergent and that have a different way of connecting 
and communicating. And so I just want them to know that and I want them to embrace it and like use that to their advantage more. That's what I'd love to see for the world and for the future. Mm. Yes. So inspiring the way you talk about all of your work and the way you look at the world, the way you look at these children and families, you, you bring you're your own gift series. So thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. I, I am so grateful to have had this conversation with you and I wish you well and look forward to when we can talk again. I would love that. You're so kind. Thank you for providing this beautiful space. I hope I've contributed to your listening community. And if anybody has any questions, they feel free to reach out. Yes, absolutely. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. And join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. For additional resources and training opportunities, visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of attachment theory. Attachment Theory in Action.